Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news and whatever else we feel like. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh28. We have three guests this week, three hosts actually. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the online offline viral get out of Hellfree.com. I'm Gary Rosenzweig. I make mobile games, mostly for the iPhone and iPad. You can find it at clevermedia.com. And I also host Mac, the videos at macmost.com. I post new tutorials there pretty much every day. I'm Leo Notenboom, and I kind of feel like a guest since I missed the past couple of weeks. I'm the, the Leo in askleo.com, where I answer tech questions and basically help people use technology with more confidence. And welcome so, back. What's been going on this week? I've been watching the fire still. We uh, have one down by Durango, which is about 50 miles south of me. But we're often getting the smoke up here. They're up to 34,000 acres now and 1,000 firefighters working it. And uh, it's just something I'm keeping an eye on all the time. But on the other hand, this weekend, they got a, a somewhere, depending on where in the fire, between half an inch and an inch and a half of rain, which is a, a lovely amount to cool things down. So good news and bad news, I guess. Yeah, it's been uh, raining on the other side of the the front range. <laughs> the mountains, yeah. The mountains, the continental divide. Um, and uh, yeah, I haven't been up to too much this week. I've you know, uh, kind of trying to not create new apps and I'm going into a app maintenance mode. So I've produced a few updates to existing apps. It's important to do those as an app developer to kind of update the interface, up, you know, fix any bugs, uh, add maybe a new feature or two, uh, that kind of thing. So I think uh, for the next little while, I want to go through some of my most popular apps and, uh, and work on those, improve those. That's what I've been up to. Well, I discovered, uh, let's see, I think it was earlier this week, Gary, you'll, you'll sympathize with this. One of my readers let me know that um, the software that I cover in one of my more popular backing up books uh, went through a change, and they actually did a relatively major update to their user interface. Um, the program still works pretty much exactly the way that it's always worked, but the buttons are over on the side instead of on the top, and they look different. And, and, and unfortunately, it's enough to, uh, for, for people to, uh, to say, hey, your book doesn't cover the current version of the software. So you can guess what I spent um, actually a good portion of this morning working on and, and recording some replacement videos yesterday. Um, that's the, uh, the backing up in Windows 10 book. The Windows 10 side of things hasn't changed very much other than the impending death of the uh, Windows 7 uh, image backup utility. But the, uh, uh, the alternative to that, uh, ESA's to do, they just released version 11. So I'm in the process of updating for that. Um, and back in the real world, um, I'm actually, I attended a meeting earlier this week where we are preparing for this year's 4th of July parade. Uh, for the last three or four years, uh, I think it's been now, I've been a volunteer radio operator uh, working behind the scenes at the city of Everett, which is north of Seattle, uh, their 4th of July parade, which is always interesting. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, as you may or may not know what a lot of these kind of events uh, are about, 
is as much supporting the event as it is practicing. Uh, most of the folks who do things like uh, radio for events like this are folks who would get pressed into service during some kind of an emergency. And a controlled environment or semi-controlled environment like a parade or like a race or some other things like that is an opportunity for us all to, uh, to practice our, uh, our radio techniques and make sure we know how to, how to communicate with one another under stress. So looking forward to that. The only problem with that, of course, is that it's a you know, get up very, very early in the morning on the 4th of July and I spend a lot of time uh, out in the crowd. Good news is I get to watch the parade from the sidelines. I was uh, always asked if I wanted to uh, do the same thing for the Rose Parade in Pasadena when I lived down there. Oh, that'd be cool. And it's like, you know, it's just such a big crowd. And you'd be there, you'd be stuck there all day, you know, starting very early in the morning and Mm -hmm. not getting out until everybody was gone. It's like, no, I just, I'll I'll do other volunteer yeah, I, stuff. I, I admit it's, it's a commitment. It's a one day commitment. Plus the, you know, the meetings in, in the, the preparation meetings, there's only a couple. Um, but, uh, but like I said, it's a lot of fun. It's one of those things too, where I've talked to a lot of um, other amateur radio operators who are basically new to the hobby and they feel really, I don't know, uncomfortable or scared, or they just don't know how to use the radio. And one of the things I tell them is, just go find an event like this, like a, like a race, like a, like a whatever, and volunteer. Um, you know, they will set you up with people who know what you're doing. You'll get the opportunity to actually talk on the air and, and practice your skills. And it's, it's a good thing all around. So, and even for, gosh, now I get to say that I'm an old timer, even though I've had my, only had my license for, I think, five years. Um, in, this, in this venue, it's, it's, you know, that's an experienced radio operator. And it's still good practice to keep going, keep doing it. So, but you have other ways of practicing Randy. So I know that you, uh, you don't need to go out and, and support a parade. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually the radio guy for our County, uh, which is why I've got uh, a couple of uh, transceivers sitting on a shelf right in front of me. I was just going to say, and sometimes during these recordings, one of them will go off. Uh, yeah, I have a pager also. Uh, I, think we've, I think you guys discussed briefly once before when I disappeared just as we were about to start recording. Exactly. But um, I can also actually page out ambulances and fire trucks from my office here. So if dispatch goes down, um, which has happened several times in the last few years, um, I'm able to send out uh, ambulances and fire trucks if need be. Such power. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Technology. Well, we should probably get on with our our topics. And of course, um, you know, there's there's this long list. um, You know, regular listeners will know we we keep a set of notes here that prepare us, give us topics to talk about for these things. And we've got this huge list of breach of the week. And um, I'm only going to touch on one of them just because I find it's kind of kind of interesting this week. There is um, one that actually made a couple of different um, uh, news outlets. The article that I'm referencing is from Bleeping Computer. UK retailer says hacker accessed 5.9 million card details, 1.2 million user records. So if you're in the UK and if you've ever used something called Dixon's Carphone, I guess, Curry's PC World, one-stop phone shop, Carphone Warehouse, um, they're the ones that apparently had a breach. So they were able to, um, they, apparently they literally got hacked. It's, it's the standard case of their database having been hacked, a copy made, 5.9 million 
credit cards were uh, copied out. And by credit cards, I do mean, you know, name, credit card number, uh, that kind of thing. The reason I find this one interesting is because this is in Europe. This is a UK-based retailer. And in the UK, the majority of the cards are use what is called chip and pin, which means that apparently those cards are significantly less vulnerable to being spoofed or used inappropriately, even when they're stolen in a situation like this. Um, the use of the number requiring either a pin or the security code that's actually on the card, you see that here in the US all the time, um, is one of those things that will presumably present, prevent a lot of fraud. Um, I just find that interesting, especially given the, the fairly lax standards that we still seem to have here in the United States with respect to credit card usage. It's not that common. Um, I should say it's not that uncommon for me to be able to make a purchase online without the additional security code. Uh, and those kinds of situations are the situations where stolen databases like this that happen to offer up real credit cards um, could be a treasure trove for the uh, the hackers. What they um, mentioned is that, uh, let's see, 5.8 million belong to payment cards that feature chip and PIN. But the rest of the exposed cards, around 105,000, belong to individuals located in non-EU countries, like the United States or elsewhere, and did not feature chip and PIN. Those are the folks that are at risk. I just... I find the, the technology difference uh, between what the, U, what the EU is requiring and what the rest of the world seems willing to tolerate very different um, and very interesting just because of the difference it makes in terms of, you know, what does it mean to me as a credit card holder? Well, probably not much. I'll probably get a new credit card, but there probably won't be any fraud. Yeah, I like the way the, the company spokesperson said, we have no evidence of any fraud on these cards as a result of this incident. Well, yeah, they wouldn't. You don't report to the, to the retailer. You report to the credit card company. Hey, there's a bogus charge on my card. Right, right. I would hope, though, in a case like that, that they'd be working very closely with the retailer. It really would be up to the credit card company whether they would even say whether they would admit there was any fraud. But you're right. Um, you know, it's not the retailer that's going to have that information. And I'm not sure why they're storing this information any, anyway anymore, unless it's an online place that you just need want to be able to click and say bye. But you know, I, I, I did. We talked a while back about um, Google Pay and Apple Pay and all that. Mm -hmm. And I did load that on my phone. Unfortunately, I live in such a rural area that there's not very many retailers that use it. But I have used it a couple of times. And the, what, the thing I like about it is that when you use that device or, or that app, it actually pings your credit card company and says, give me a credit card number for this. Right. And, then, and then it transmits it into the terminal. And then that credit card number is not valid anymore. Right. Yeah, you, you're That's getting a brand new credit card number every time you use the uh, Yeah, the, which is really cool. I, which I just happened to do this afternoon. We were at the grocery store and sure enough, you know, just tap it and off you go. Um, it is very, very convenient. You know, it's funny. I've done, as you know, I've done retail myself years ago. My wife and I operated a doll shop and being who I am, of course, I wrote my own point of sale software, which included um, keeping people's credit cards. Mm. And there were reasons for that. But what was really, really interesting was the requirement 
the requirements that were placed on you as a retailer by the credit card companies. Um, if you uh, suffered a breach, you were liable for something like half a million dollars uh, per uh, card. Oh which, my! In a, in a in a small business, I mean that's just the un, that's just the end of the business, right? You declare bankruptcy and, and you go away. But I just thought that was interesting. And also, what was interesting for me from a technology point of view is that yes, it requires some thinking, but I don't want to say security is not easy. I'm not going to say that security is easy, but if you know what you're doing, the steps that are required to store credit cards securely, for example, yeah, you know what those are. It's not that difficult to understand what it takes to make that happen. And I did. I mean, I obviously, I did all that kind of stuff thinking about, you know, when do things actually get written to disk or not, or all those kinds of issues. Um, so I would hope that the larger systems, you know, like say whatever this, this UK company was using, would already have all that stuff in mind, would already understand what it takes to do things. But the fact is, if somebody was able to pull up a database and actually extract credit card numbers from it, the credit card numbers weren't encrypted. I mean, you know, or, or the encryption was so poor as it could be easily cracked. I mean, there's just so many things that, that, could be done properly that seemingly time and time again aren't. As you know, I also take credit cards for goods and services and I won't store them. And occasionally a, uh, a customer will say, Hey, would you just ding my card again for a renewal? I was like, no, I can't. I don't store right. it. Right. Um, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, you also use Stripe. I use I Stripe. Do. Yeah. Stripe will store it. So what yes. that means is that they'll key off of the user's um, email address. Right. But it's not on my, I mean, the, the credit card information is not on my server. It's not on your server. It's out on Stripe's server. And right. So even if we did get hacked, nobody yeah. would get the card numbers. Exactly. Exactly. Which is a very nice way to do that. Um, and let's see. So there were also random, in addition to the credit card numbers for an additional 12 or uh, at 12 million user records, the standard stuff was also stolen. And by that, I mean um, names and email addresses and those kinds of things. So those folks can... And probably also, physical addresses. Uh, perhaps. Um, but those folks can also now expect an uptick in spam and those kinds of things. Ouch. So the, um, <laughs> I ran across an article last week about... Um, an Internet of Things padlock, which <laughs> sounded kind of like it. It's an interesting concept, right? I mean, I, you know, there are definitely door locks and such that you can connect to the Internet. And there are various features that you can enable on those kind of devices so that you can like let in guests and stuff. That's really cool. It is really cool to let in guests um, and or unlock it remotely or any number, any number of random things. So the same kind of concept for a padlock, if I'm not mistaken, it was going to be like a, a fingerprint-based thing um, among, other, uh, among other features. And it's Bluetooth and all that. Well, the interesting thing was that, yes, it's Bluetooth. What they discovered, so this is all, by the way, on a, um, the Sophos's uh, Naked Security blog, now, the world's worst smart padlock. It's even worse than we thought, and you'll see why here in a second. Uh, what they discovered last week was that um, if you 
basically sniffed the Bluetooth uh, transmission, what you could find is that uh, it was essentially trivial to then calculate an unlock code. You didn't need any additional information. All you really needed was um, the MAC address. The MAC address, yeah. The MAC address of the lock. And since Bluetooth is a networking protocol, there is, in fact, a MAC identifier for that end of the the network connection. Um, That, some calculation, and poof, you can unlock the padlock uh, within, I think they said, two seconds. (laughs) Which, you know, okay, I, I thought that was spectacularly bad uh, and, and somewhat humorous. Uh, and, but I didn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't rise to the level of, of saying, oh, I got to talk about that. That happened yesterday. Uh, the, uh, as it turns out, you don't even need to do that. All you really need to do is have your own padlock, your own account with this company. You can log into your account with this company, change the padlock ID, and then remotely unlock any padlock, any (laughs) padlock from this company, uh, which is amazing. Uh, Yeah, let's see. The Pentest Partners is the company that actually did the testing. And quote, um, they managed to create an unlock any tap lock program that could open any lock in just two seconds compared to the 0.8 seconds required for the official app to open it. Um, That was the the sniffing approach. There's a software-only mode which does this app, this um, uh, replacement of the lock ID. And now uh, it actually does take you only 0.8 seconds to unlock any (laughs) of these padlocks anywhere they happen to be used. So um, this And they didn't use HTTPS for, you know, going back to the home servers either. So, I mean, it's just a, a cluster activity of <laughs> stupid mistakes. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was a pretty, pretty brilliant combination of things gone wrong. Combination, I get it. Uh-huh. Um, I love those unintentional puns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, 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 that's why I said earlier when I was talking about um, you know, security, security is difficult. It, it is. But this is pretty <laughs> obvious stuff. But there's some basic stuff you gotta you gotta understand before you do security, and and clearly, um, the individual or individuals, because I have no idea how big a company this is, um, really didn't understand the various pieces that need to come together to make something secure. Have the intern do that part. I'm sorry. Have the intern do that part. Yeah, yeah, that might very well be what happened. There is definitely a a school of thought that says you don't uh, have generic engineers do security. You have people whose job it is to do security, do security. Uh, that includes encryption and, and securing things like websites. And even if they're just brought in as a consultant to do the dry run, to do the pen test, to do the various things that, that would make some of these more interesting ways or more obvious ways um, into your system more obvious. It just, it, it, yeah. It's one of the reasons, actually, uh, one of my, I'll just say, more controversial uh, positions is that I don't trust uh, browser-based 
browser included password vaults. So like when Firefox or Chrome or Internet Explorer ask if I want them to remember my password for me, I politely decline. And a lot of that is because historically there have been problems. I'm sure it's better now, but there have been problems. But ultimately, the pass- storing passwords and encrypting passwords and keeping that sensitive information has always been an add-on feature to a, to a team of engineers whose job it is to do something else. Whereas when you use a tool like LastPass or RoboForm or KeePass or any of these other password management utilities, their job, their focus is 100% on security. That makes me feel better about that kind of thing. That's what these folks needed to do. They need to have someone who really understands security come in and actually make their smart padlock a little bit smarter than it turned out to be. Of course, the funny thing is, is that if you uh, hired an expert to go and break one of these padlocks for you, and they knew how to do all of this stuff, they had Bluetooth devices and an app that could do all this and the, everything, they still probably just find it easier to take a pair of bolt, color, uh, bolt cutters and just snap the padlock. Right. I mean, there's certainly a level of, of security. That's, this is just a padlock. Well, Padlocks aren't very secure no matter what. You know. Right. But yeah, but your average guy doesn't carry around a bolt cutter. So. No, but uh, yeah, but somebody that's looking to you know break into sheds or bikes, you know, bike chains or whatever, probably will and doesn't even know that this padlock is the one that they're going to encounter. Right. So they bring bolt cutters because that'll cut through any padlock, <laughs> <laughs> you know, regardless of what system it uses, and they don't have to know anything special. You know, they just need to just snip it. Um, and for the, re- you know, there are definitely padlocks that are architected, physically architected to make bolt cutting almost impossible. But yeah, your point's well taken. Um, you know, padlock has a certain amount of security uh, implied and a certain lack of security implied. Yeah. So speaking of security, um, this one I ran across this afternoon, actually, uh, as I was preparing for this. Apple says it's working with a startup to automatically share the locations of iPhone users with 911 operators in an emergency. This was an NPR story. And my reaction um, was, I thought they already did. I thought when you or I dial 911 that they get the location of my phone. Uh, it's, It's part of... I mean, I use the location on my phone all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, I would expect that 911 would get that information uh, almost instantly. But, Gary, you say that you, you looked into it? And that was Yeah, part- well, yeah, because it's confusing. Because, of course, people say, well, wait a minute. You know, Uber knows where I am. You know, pizza delivery app knows where I am. You know, all, all these things know where you are. And then people remember hearing something about an emergency feature of the phone that automatically sends your location. And for, you know, the last year, there has been a feature. It's not for 911, though. It's, although it is tied into 911 because it gets triggered. One of the ways it's triggered is when you dial 911 on your phone. You can set up on an iPhone emergency contacts, and you can have several of them. And you can do many things with those emergency contacts, including somebody, you know, if you're passed out or something, somebody can actually grab your phone, it's locked, and actually tap an emergency contact button on the screen and be able to call somebody that's listed in your emergency contacts. And these people will also get a notification if you have an emergency or if you dial 911. And the notification is something like, I mean, I've never experienced it myself, of course, but it's something like, the, you know, this person, so, you know, so-and-so has 
called uh, emergency services, and it will tell the person that's your emergency contact your exact location. Not only that, it will update your location. So if I guess if you're being kidnapped, or maybe if you're you're moving, um, uh, you know, maybe you're in a cab or whatever, and you you're having a, an emergency, uh, it'll update that person uh, with your your location, even if you turn off location services. When you invoke an emergency by dialing 911, this activates. Now, the odd thing is this doesn't go to 911. This doesn't go to the emergency operator. This goes to whoever it is, you know, your emergency contact. Um, and apparently the reason for that is because all the different standards and different entities involved with 911, there's no standard way for Apple or Google through Android to relay that information to the 911 operators in some sort of universal way because I mean your iPhone could be you could be anywhere and but every 911 system apparently and Randy you probably know a lot more about this than I do but there's different 911 systems in different locations um, yes and no yeah <laughs> well and there and and the idea here is and the story is is that the startup and Apple uh, are trying to fix that and standardize this and also the federal government is part of this too because the federal government has mandated that by 2021 i think that this has to work at least in 80 percent of the of cases uh this has to work so you know the finally the it has to be the phone companies like at&t and sprint and verizon and t-mobile and the 911 companies and the you know Android and iOS operating systems they all have to agree on this standard and what happens is you dial nine one one and the system there will get the incoming phone call and a location so um, and you know if Apple's saying that they'll have this in iOS twelve that means this could be in place at least for the nine one one organizations that support it uh, by you know the end of September most likely so there's some different levels of 911 equipment that the dispatch centers can have. And the, the first level is that, well, and we're, there's the difference between landline phones and cell phones. So landline phones, they are mapped to a specific address and there's a, a company that keeps that up to date. And if there's an error, like somebody does call 911 and the, location's wrong, they put in a trouble ticket, and that goes to the, to the people that update this, this big database. So that's, that's the first thing. That's landline. On wireless, if you call 911, the very first easy level is they know what cell tower you're hitting. And if you're also in range of another cell tower, they can triangulate. Even if the phone doesn't have a GPS chip on it, they can get a general location of where you are. And then the next level is that the phone does have a GPS chip and it transmits it. I have never heard of any phone brand that doesn't do that. I've been able to, um, you know, as an emergency responder, uh, ask dispatch, can you ping the phone? And if, if it's an actual emergency, I mean, they, they call the cell phone company directly. So this is when they're not in communication with, with that cell phone. If you just have somebody who's missing and you want to know where they are, 
uh, they can call the cell phone company and say, um, this is an emergency. We're looking for the owner of this number. And then the uh, cell phone company, the carrier, can find out pretty quickly whether they can find that phone or not. So, so I think that's where the difference is. That's the real story here is the timeliness of it. Right. What Apple's proposing is you dial 911 and the second that connects, the yes. 911 operator will see this phone number and it's this person and they're right here. Whereas right now it could be up to a minute delay. And the statistic I saw was that if they could cut a minute delay out of all of the mobile phone calls that come in, to get a location, it will save 10,000 lives a year. That's what they, they say, that one minute will save 10,000 lives a year. And so. I believe it, but um, I, I would be really shocked if yeah. they're not transmitting location upon initial call. See, that's, that's, where I, that's where I came from, is that I'm shocked that, that apparently, that, I'm shocked that this work is even needed. Yeah, apparently it is. I mean, so this Wall Street Journal article that, you know, we'll include in the notes, I mean, it goes on to give some, all these detailed reasons about competing systems of determining GPS location and why or, uh, you know, whatever reason the 911 systems don't use those or don't accept those. And it's very odd. And it's surprising to me too. You think it would just be done, but uh, apparently it's not. Um, But you know, we could just be a few months away from forgetting about that because it is done. Well, speaking of, gosh, this just doesn't, this is a horrible <laughs> transition. Speaking, <laughs> of, speaking of things that are dead. Oh. Um, the rumor is the Mac is dead. At least those are the headlines that I was <laughs> reading. Yeah, every, yeah. I've got a personal stake in this one for reasons that I'll explain shortly. Um, what's up with that, Gary? Oh, uh, the same thing. It's up with it every year that somebody says Mac is dead. Um, I mean, it's been an all, you know, there there hasn't been a year since the Mac launch that somebody hasn't spread a rumor uh, about it. Uh, I think, you know, Leo, you were saying that you know, one of the main reasons for this rumor is because at the Worldwide Developer Conference, there were all sorts of announcements, but no new hardware announcements. Um, and, uh, you know, the the deal is, you know, it's Apple has two major times they do announcements, uh, maybe three. One is uh, at, in June for the Worldwide Developers Conference. And then in the fall, they do a few announcements, usually as a run-up to the, you know, what they're going to offer before the holidays. So usually new iPhones, maybe new iPads, sometimes new Macs. And every once in a while, they'll also do some announcements in the new year, uh, you know, in January or so. And it used to be the Worldwide Developer Conference had some hardware announcements in it, but Apple kind of really kept warning, saying, look, this is supposed to be about developers, so it's really a software conference, not a hardware conference. But if they happen to have a new MacBook or something coming out, they'll, they're you know, doing a keynote anyway, might as well announce it. And finally this year, they got around to a keynote where there really wasn't any new hardware to announce at all. But you know, the funny thing is, of course, a large part of it was talking about the new software for the Mac, you know, the new operating system. So there was plenty of talk about, you know, future developments for the Mac, just not an actual new piece of hardware. Um, one of the main reasons that Apple uh, Mac hardware is slowly getting old and not seeing that many refreshes, or at least people surmise this is the reason, is, you know, Intel. It's basically Intel uh, chips that go into these Macs. And uh, if there are delays on 
chip production, then uh, the Macs don't come out. You know, they Intel will ship a chip to Apple. Apple say, great, we're going to use this in the new MacBook Pro or whatever. And they develop a MacBook Pro around it. And then Intel says, oh, we said we were going to have Six half a million. Six months delay. Yeah, we're going to have half a million to, the, to you in March. But no, it turns out it's not going to be until September. And Apple's like, great, our next Mac uses this. We can't do anything but just wait. Um, which is one of the reasons that Apple has talked a lot and has been preparing us by leaking rumors and, and mentioning things that they're considering developing their own chip for, uh, for the Mac, which will probably be, uh, well, Apple owned, you know, has purchased a lot of uh, silicon chips, uh, silicon chip companies recently, and they have their own chip that goes into the iPhone and iPad, which is why those things come out like clockwork. Um, and the feeling is that Apple will base a more powerful processor off of that same type of system or something like that. And Apple will move away from Intel. And once they move away from Intel, they can actually control when their new Macs come out instead of having Intel. Do they have their control. own fab or are they uh, contracting these out? For the, for the, uh, for the ARM chips, for the um, iPhone? and Right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess they... I, I, I know they, I think they have some <laughs> is the answer. Oh. Um, but they, they have, you know, it's their chips. They're only in iPhones and iPads. They're so owned by the, Apple, the, Apple TVs and stuff. The concern I have about them doing their yeah. own chip is, is, you know, the, the eternal question will be, will it be um, x86 compatible? Will yeah. It be, will it be like an a, another AMD? And we talked about that on the, on the show before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, that's a good idea that it will be another, you know, compatible or maybe not because, right. you know, it's get it's a long way, a long time since the last time Apple did this. And I think the way the operating system is now and the way software is developed now, it would be a far easier transition to go to a new chip. Right. Um, you know, and a chip that they have control over. Remember, that's the thing. You know, going from the Power PC processor to an Intel chip, they had two. You know, basically external processors that they were. You know, right. g- going from point A to point B, but they didn't own point A or point B. If they're creating a point C, they could say, "Look, we want to make sure point C is it's really easy to get to from point B." But well, I think one of the reasons that they went to x86 and the to begin with was to capture um, of the large developer audience yeah. that was writing x86 software that was familiar with the processor that knew right. how to make it work um, as opposed to the smaller subset of folks who were interested in the power PC. Yeah. And I just now don't know if that's be, important anymore. Yeah, it might not be. It might not be, but it, it would be if, if they do change the architecture, it would be something they'd be explicitly walking away from. I mean, like, so for instance, as a developer, I can tell you, you know, you, you use on, on Macs, you use Xcode which is Apple's provided, you know, development system. And it's pretty comprehensive. It's a big development tool. It's probably one of the most used development tools out there because all iOS apps are developed with it, but also almost all Mac apps are developed with it. And it's the same tool. And I could, you could actually build something that you can compile, you know, in a Mac app, export as a Mac app, and export as an iOS app. Now, it's tough to do because you've got a touchscreen interface in one hand and you've got a mouse, you know, and a cursor on the other hand with a keyboard. You know, it's, there's, there's barriers. You can't just go and create an app and go in both directions. Right, those are but, functional differences, not yeah, architectural. Differences. Yeah, you're not, you're not saying, oh, okay, so I wrote all this code that, say, 
processes graphics. You know, I, if you do an image processor that's going to do all sorts of things with graphics, that code you would develop, and you would not have to rewrite those libraries, those functions and classes and everything for one operating system or the other. So that's a, that's a big difference uh, now. And, and presumably the system, at, you know, systems really, there's several that Apple provides now for software developers for the Mac. They're not going to go and ask people to say, okay, throw that away. <laughs> Even though we've been, we talk so much about Swift and Xcode all the time and use something new for this new processor. No, it's almost certainly going to be, oh, you know, you just need to recompile. Just like you would recompile 32-bit to 64-bit, or right. you just, just recompile for a new operating system. You know, if you have a high Sierra app and you're testing it for a Mojave now, you know, you would recompile it for, you know, compatibility with Mojave and, and all that. I do the same thing for my iOS games. You know, there's certain things that I need to go and say, I need to come out with a new version of that that uses the up-to-date library so it's fully compatible with iOS 11 because I haven't updated since iOS 9 or something. Um, so I, anyway, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Now, Apple is, you know, I know you use, you know, pretty high-end stuff, and Apple has over and over again said, next year there's going to be a new Mac Pro. Um, which is what I'm, which is what I'm waiting yeah. for. I mentioned I have a vested interest. You know, I've got a Mac Pro among other things, yeah. and I've been very happy with it. But as hardware goes, um, the software is evolving to to use more and more of it, so it's getting a little long in the tooth. And I'm, I can yeah. see it's not an imminent thing for me, but at some point I'm going to need a new machine. And I honestly, being platform agnostic, I'm still not sure what's going to be the better choice. Will there be a Mac Pro for me or not? Yeah. Yeah, well, it'll be, uh, I mean, they, they've said over and over again they're coming out with it. They certainly uh, seem like they're going to do that. I'm sure it's going to be expensive. <laughs> and they also keep promising that they've listened to all the, you know, things that people had to say about the last Mac Pro. And they're going to do something very different that will please developers. So we'll see what happens. You know, people are thinking, is it going to be more modular? What's going to happen? And then meanwhile, they their most recent Mac they came out with, which was just, you know, in December, it was the iMac Pro, which was a whole new model that, you know, a new line, really, of super powerful, you know, iMacs. Um, and those are pretty cool. And it's a shame Kevin's not here. I think he's used one. So um, I played with them at the Apple Store, but I have a Mac Pro, so I didn't really need to upgrade to a iMac Pro. It would have kind of been a, kind of been a side grade to me. When, when I looked at the iMac Pro, it did feel like it, wa it wasn't really getting anything that I didn't really already have. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, I guess the thing is, if, you, if I was still with my old Mac Pro, you know, I hadn't upgraded in 2014 or whatever, you know, it would have been great to go to the iMac Pro. Or if I was an iMac user and I had just been simply using an iMac with the specs maxed out, you know, just the right. best processor and most memory and all that, then going to an iMac Pro would have made a lot of sense. Um, the reason it doesn't make much sense to me is as a developer, I have multiple screens. And uh, so right. an iMac takes care of one for you really nicely, <laughs> but you still need to go and have you know extra screens. So at that point, it's like, well, Mac Pro makes more sense. Just plug as many screens into it as you need and, and arrange them how you want. And uh, Well, I'm still in that, that classic conundrum. I mean, on, on one hand, you know, I, I do like the Mac Pro a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what they offer as its replacement. But if my needs come sooner than their availability, yeah. um, there's a there's a plethora of you know PCs 
sure. that um, that will do what I need done uh, and possibly even cheaper. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, it's good to be platform agnostic. I'm just as comfortable in one as the other. Uh, the uh, Even Linux is an option, although there's a couple of pieces of software that won't work for Linux right now that I kind of sort of need. But uh, on one hand, it's great to be flexible. On the other hand, I'd like to see what those options are going to be and if there's going to be one. Sure. Yeah. And I can't, I'm looking forward to it too, because next year would be the perfect time for me to upgrade my Mac pro. I think Um, now in other Macs, they are, there are lots of strong rumors about a new MacBook air that has been, uh, hasn't been updated in a while. And it's the only Mac now that doesn't use a retina display. Um, That's the main differentiator is you get the MacBook air they sell in stores. Now it's, basically using a standard resolution display um, as opposed to the, even the MacBook, just the standard MacBook, which is cheaper, <laughs> that uses a retina display. Hmm. So, and, you know, and also the MacBook that is not only cheaper, but it's thinner than the MacBook Air, or at least pretty close to it. I think the MacBook Air kind of like starts off thin at one end and gets thicker right. at the other, whereas the MacBook is consistent. Um, so the thinking is, well, if Apple really wants to just wow people with a new MacBook Air and revitalize that that brand. They could come out with something that's like super thin, like think like iPad thin, right? Uh, but it's a, a but it's a Mac instead. And there's certainly I can't think of any reason why they couldn't come out with that, especially now that they've switched to USB C, right? As ports, so you don't have to have you know that the thickness of the you know the standard USB port anymore for any or power port. Uh, so yeah, it could be, uh, could be interesting. I, I, and I think also the Mac pros, you know, people complain mostly about the keyboards. I have a Mac pro that's got the exact keyboard that people complain about and I don't seem to have any issues with it. Oh, it's funny. Cause I, um, I've got a, um, a Logitech keyboard on my yeah. Mac pro. Uh, just because it was wireless and it's one that uses solar to recharge its own battery. So it's just one of those things oh, that yeah. I never have to worry about. No, actually, no. It's a nice yeah. keyboard. No, but I'm talking about on my MacBook Pro. Uh, my, I have an external keyboard, of course, on my Mac Pro, but the MacBook Pro has got a oh. super thin little keyboard. Right. And people complain there's just not tr- enough travel on the keys, and also the keys break uh, too easily. So, um, so like I that. will, I will admit, um, right now what I'm recording on is in fact my MacBook Pro, yeah. uh, and I do have an external keyboard on it. Uh, it's it's a Dell keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I have to tell you that right now I am with my Mac Pro and I've got my Apple keyboard, my Apple trackpad, and I'm staring at three Dell monitors. <laughs> oh, yes. I've got a Dell monitor on this as well. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty crazy. Well, I have a Dell computer and a Dell monitor and a third-party third keyboard. With your Dell computer just to balance us out. Yeah. Can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, so, so no, Mac, Mac's not dead by any, any means. I think actually, I think we're in a kind of a little lull before some great stuff. Cause if Apple takes the processor back and they also come out with a new Mac pro, um, and a new MacBook air and everything like that, we could be looking at say one year from today, uh, you know, just, uh, being like, wow, Apple did a lot with the Mac in this, you know, in this period of time, but it was, this is kind of like the springboard time. 
they're they're going to come out with new stuff. So well, I, I hope that's true. I'm looking forward to it. It's always you know it's always exciting to see. Yeah, what's and then sales numbers for Mac have been strong. If you you know you look at that that stuff, which I of course do. Um, it, it particularly there's been a lot of quarters in the last couple of years where PC sales have declined mm-hmm. because mobile sales and tablet sales have gone up. Right, and also there's not been a lot of wow factor in the you know desktop and laptop world in terms of like oh these new processors are so much faster than the old ones that kind of thing. Right, um, it's not been a lot of that, but there's been decline in it, and then a lot of those quarters with decline, they've shown how the Mac's been steady or even improved a little bit in terms of sales. Well, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, only 1% improvement, but the PC market overall was like a 5% decline or something. I think that's the fear a lot of people have when it comes to to Apple and potentially whether or not they're going to bother with more Macs, be it, be it laptops or desktops, is that if anybody is seen pushing the mobile and tablet market forward, it's Apple. And they could, it's, it's conceivable that internally they could see uh, the desktop and the laptop uh, market as a diversion from that. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, yep. so Gary, you had something else here? Oh, I just saw, you know, just browsing through interesting things because this after all is the tech enthusiast hour. So I like to find stories to be enthusiastic about. And there was a, uh, a campaign, I guess it's an Indiegogo campaign or whatever for an interesting device called the, uh, the speak C or at least that's the name of the company. Anyway, it's a, it's an accessibility device for people that are deaf. Because, and I, I never realized this, I, I always find it fascinating for people with disabilities like sight or hearing and, and all, some of the problems that technology, you know, they face that technology can solve, and it never occurs to those of us that don't have these issues that that's an issue. And here's an issue I never thought of is partaking in conversations if you're deaf. Um, because, of course, technology makes it is great uh, for enabling you to, partake in talking to one person but how about if there are three people and those three people are talking to each other and you're kind of left out uh and they have a device that basically it's a three microphones and you hand out those three microphones to uh the people you're having a conversation with and the microphones kind of pick up on who has the microphone so you know you kind of click clip it to your shirt and it isolates that one person, and they each have like a color. And then your phone, and it's just, it works with a standard phone, uh, there's an app, would pick up what they're saying, you know, uh, convert it to text. Speech and, recognition. Yeah, speech recognition, and, uh, and put it onto your phone in the color of, you know, whatever the microphone is. So you can, while you can't hear what they're saying, you can see what they're saying. and partake in the conversation that you may not have otherwise been able to because those, those three people are talking to each other and not just you. Not, it's not just a one-on-one conversation. So I thought that was a really interesting take on, uh, on an accessibility device. It's pretty simple um, when it comes down to it. You know, just, just you need three channels you know, or multiple channels rather than a single channel. Yeah, it works up to nine microphones. Yeah. Wow. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, and it's a great idea because, you know, you, you could see doing that with just a phone, but you wouldn't be able to pick out who was talking. It would make it very difficult to follow the conversation. So, like yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of another app I heard about just, what, a couple of weeks ago, I think, where you can um, uh, describe things for the blind. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, basically, they use their phone 
and they sort of point it in front of them and the, you you volunteer and you're just basically in this pool of volunteers ready to come to the you know to the uh, to the rescue so to speak and describe what you see so that you can right. uh, they can they can quote unquote see by having you describe what's in front of them it's actually a very yeah. very which cool one is the red sweater things like that yeah yeah, yeah, all those yeah. kinds of things, right? Um, very cool. The other side of it that I thought was really interesting last year, I, I met someone who wears hearing aids, and uh, she was fair, knowing my my you know technical proclivity and my interest in that kind of stuff. Uh, she was very excited to show me that there was an app on her phone that she would use to adjust her hearing aids in real time. So they were connected via Bluetooth. And she could adjust things like, you know, the essentially the, the moral equivalent of an equalizer, the sensitivity, the, you know, the, the frequency response, those kinds of things. And there would be, um, there were presets, right? She could set her hearing aids for music or conversation or whatever. And then, of course, there was the ability to customize it for specific, specific ranges and specific things to try and improve the performance of the hearing aids in real time, which I also thought was actually pretty, pretty interesting use of the technology. Interesting. There's actually uh, another story this week or, you know, uh, around Apple's new iOS 12 that's in beta now. And there's also the popular ear pods, which I have, you know, the wireless um, right. headphones and they, in iOS 12, those apparently are going to be, uh, there's going to be more access for apps to be able to directly, you know, connect those to the microphone and basically provide hearing aid type of a uh, hearing aid type of situation, which of course wouldn't be the, you know, very expensive type hearing aids that you would get, you know, as a medical device, right. But could fill a gap between, you know, there's, you know, a cheap solution for somebody that needs a little bit of help, right? An expensive solution for somebody that, you know, absolutely needs the medical device, you know, it could make it so a few, a few less people need to actually spend the money on an expensive device and a, uh, and because an iPhone is not an expensive device. Yeah. No, well, because you already, <laughs> cause the idea is you already have it, you know, and you right. have it, you have your AirPods and all that. And, and uh, yeah. If I understand what you're saying, though, it's kind of like, you know, instead of, you know, asking someone to speak louder, you kind of hold your phone in their general direction and say, speak into my phone, would you? It's connected to my ears. Well, the AirPods have a microphone in them, both of them. Yeah. So you have to, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, because you can use them and talk. Uh, you know, I could have a phone conversation. Right. With them, or okay. talk to Siri uh, with them. So in each one works, you know, to, if you're going to do something, I like have a phone conversation or talk to Siri, you only need to put one in. And it doesn't matter which one. So you have two microphones on them and you've got, you know, a, a pretty good quality uh, speaker in them as well. And so I don't know. And I suppose it's up to developers to work on it. Um, you know, and it says, here, see, Apple created a, a this is called Live Listen is the, is the name of the feature. And um, a Live Listen Assistance Hearing App. Hmm. And, and AirPods will be compatible with that. Um, and it's been confirmed, apparently, that that is going to be something in iOS 12. Uh, and right now, it's only compatible with third-party hearing aids and implants. So the changes that iOS 12 will make it usable if you just have EarPods. So, I like that. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah, so it's some more more cool stuff. I, I like how a lot of these tech companies, it, it's not just Apple, but 
a lot of companies, uh, Microsoft and Google and, and everything really do, uh, you know, they, they like to find these uses to make devices useful for people like this. Yep. The timing on this is pretty funny because, uh, last week we had a training from a sign language interpreter, uh, for the medics. And, uh, I found it really interesting because I took two or three years of, of American sign language in college. And so I just have more awareness than the average person. And it was real interesting to, to hear her point of view as somebody who works with the deaf very commonly. Cool. Interesting. I think, wasn't there a story this week too of somebody, um, was it Starbucks? Uh, using oh, yeah. video. Somebody, I sent that to you, Leo. Yes. In fact, I, I used it, I believe, for uh, Not All News is Bad just a day or two ago. That's where I read it from you, Leo. Uh, yeah. Your Not um, All News is Bad. Basically, yeah. the, they've, so at the drive throughs some of them now have cameras where you can see the barista and the barista can see you. And in this particular Starbucks, someone drove up and attempted to use sign language probably ASL, and the barista responded. And they were able to have, you know, basically place the order and do the whole thing in sign language, which was very, very cool. Awesome. So it just happened to be that barista new sign language? I believe so. I'm not, I'm, I don't know for certain. Not that they have like somebody on duty and they patch them through, huh? right. which would be yep. interesting. That also would be a very, very useful, um, useful thing. They wouldn't even have to be on site, right? Right. They could have somebody at Starbucks headquarters doing that. But, uh, but the concept, you know, the, 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 I think the biggest piece of the technology that's not common, and the reason it was the beginnings of Newsworthy, is this bi-directional camera, right? A yeah. lot of the time, all you really have is a really bad speaker and a microphone. Whereas this time now there's actually a camera behind it. I've actually been through one where I got to see the barista talking to me. And it's interesting. It's not necessary, right? You can, you can place your order with a speaker and a microphone. But um, it definitely makes it a little bit more, um, I don't want to say enjoyable, but certainly more personal. Hmm. So It makes me wonder if it was a publicity stunt that they set this up. Because not only did it happen, but there was somebody there to video it. There's certainly a possibility, um, but you know when you think about how many millions of people are going through drive-through every day. Um, oh, absolutely! But just you happen to have a deaf person who happened to try sign language, and the barista at the other end of the camera happened to be able yeah. to understand and sign back. Well, it, it whether, just sounds far-fetched, is all. Whether whether we want to be cynical about these things or not, <laughs> it's a good thing, right? I agree. It is an absolutely I, I, good thing. I think it's possible that it it maybe it, it's the kind of thing like Leo was saying that there's enough people out there, enough transactions going on that Starbucks probably could have mathematically worked out. Hey, as soon as we put the system in place in X number of stores, it's going to take X number of days probably for this to happen. Right. <laughs> and and we'll have video of it, right? Because, you know, we're, so they probably could have predicted that it was going to happen sooner or later and probably sooner. Right. And have been ready, you know, ready to jump on it as a, you know, something they could uh, promote. Right. Uh, but they may not have set up that particular incident. They may have just been waiting patiently for a few days or weeks to, for it to happen. And like I said, whether it was a stunt or not, it was a, it's a good thing. Yeah. So, 
All right. Well, that's, what's coming uh, up this yeah. week, guys? Not much. I'll probably uh, I'll probably going to keep just working on my apps and stuff. <laughs> Got summer travels coming up soon, so that's what I'm doing this week. I'm actually uh, my wife and I and the dogs are heading out to the beach for a few days to Oh, nice. Yeah, taking the taking the travel trailer out there with a bunch of other corgi owners out to the Washington Beach. Now, Washington Beach doesn't mean that we can go swimming in the warm water. It's still the <laughs> ice cold Pacific here and it'll be supposedly we're going to have some good weather so it'll at least be sunny uh but you know probably 70s out there uh it'll be it'll be fun i wanted to mention that i've been reading and i'll be finishing during this trip uh, a book called factfulness by hans rosling you may have heard of it because it's the book that bill gates is actually giving to every college graduate who cares to apply uh it's yeah for free and I'd already had it on my Kindle, and that prioritized my getting around to it. I didn't realize it, but I'd actually already watched a TED Talk by uh, Mr. Rosling, uh, who unfortunately has since passed away. But the, uh, the TED Talk itself is extremely interesting. How Not to Be Ignorant About the World is what it's called. And, of course, we'll have the link in the notes. Uh, but the book itself is also very, very uh, enjoyable, very interesting. It's another one of those cases where if you take a look at the data, at the facts, things are way, way better than most people assume that they are. The trends for the just the general improvement in the world are way, way, way better than our gut tells us. It's along the lines of Enlightenment now, but currently I, I basically paused Enlightenment now by, by I think it's Stephen Pinker. Uh, and am reading uh, the book by Rosling. Ros it's it's more to me. It's more accessible, more readable, and I'm looking forward to wrapping that up uh, with my feet up outside the trailer, and watching the corgis at my feet. Hmm. Great. Well, I'm going to be uh, writing a speech in the next little while. I'm going to be speaking at the Mensa annual gathering in Indianapolis on July 7th. So they have this annual convention, national convention every year, and it's over the 4th of July weekend. And uh, I went ahead and pitched a speech to them, and they said, do it. So cool. Can I got to write it now. Like a, a topic or a, a theme for your speech? Well, it's funny that you've been reading books about thinking and all that, and I've right. been talking about thinking a lot, and uh, I'm going to be talking about thinking to <laughs> Mensons. <laughs> what a concept. I like it. <laughs> cool. All righty. Yeah. I guess I that about there. wraps it up. I think that's an hour. Mm -hmm. Well, just a quick listener note. When you tweet something nice about TEH, we screen cap it and post it on the TEH homepage. So be sure you tag us at the TEH podcast so we see it. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash TEH28. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Bye.